What's up, everybody? This is episode four of the Trumpet Summit. My name is John Raymond. Have you guys been enjoying these conversations so far? Because I'm having a ball getting to talk with these amazing musicians. I'm sure you feel as inspired as I do from all the wisdom that they've shared. And uh, I can tell you now that the rest of season one is stacked with other amazing trumpet players, some really heavy conversations, and uh, you guys aren't going to want to miss this stuff. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it, and you'll be sure to get all the latest episodes as they come out over the next few weeks and months. All right, today we're getting into it with the great Terrell Stafford. Terrell just plays so much trumpet. I mean, every context you hear him in, he plays the instrument so masterfully, and he plays with so much fire and soulfulness. He's one of my favorite trumpet players and has been for a long time, and I think he's one of the most working jazz trumpet players out there. So we get into a bunch of great stuff here about studying with Prof Fielder at Rutgers, which, if you guys don't know, is it's kind of legendary in jazz trumpet circles because he taught Winton and Terrence and Sean Jones and so many others over the years. He gets into some really great stuff about the three daily routines that he has that he keeps religiously, which is really great stuff. But the bulk of the conversation is Terrell telling all these amazing anecdotes and stories about being on the road with Bobby Watson or what he learned from Shirley Scott, as well as this one Clark Terry story that literally transformed Terrell from being strictly a classical trumpet player to somebody who could swing his behind off immediately, okay? It's amazing. So without further ado, here's the great Terrell Stafford. All right, time for a shameless plug. There aren't any sponsors for this podcast, so if you want to support what I'm doing, one way that you can do that and actually get something out of it is by going to my website, john-raymond.com, and picking up a PDF or a hard copy of my new book called The Jazz Trumpet Routine, which is a fundamentals book geared towards creative improvisers that is essentially designed to rethink how we go about practicing and approaching fundamentals from the perspective of a jazz trumpet player, okay? It includes over 175 different exercises that are designed for players of all ages, all ability levels, as well as for those who have any amount of experience in jazz or improvisation. More importantly though, the book is going to help you develop an approach and a concept for how to do those exercises in a way that mirrors the improvisation process so that fundamentals and improvisation become one and the same. But the best part is that every single exercise comes with a call and response style play along recording that you can practice with so that you can hear an example of how it should sound and then imitate it yourself. And this is the whole idea behind the book, is to develop such a vivid concept of how you want something to sound, and then simply play what you hear, right? Trumpet playing is really meant to be that easy. So check it out, john-raymond.com. I'd appreciate your support. Thanks so much for doing this, Tarot. It's great to see you again. Great to chat. Good to see you. So proud of all your accomplishments. Oh, man. Thanks, man. I uh, just trying to follow in footsteps like you and, and a lot of other folks I admire. So uh, in preparation for us getting to, to chat here, I was going back over a bunch of your records and things that you played on. And I can't really remember an example or a time when I've heard you 
on record or live and not thinking like, man, the trumpet is speaking so clearly, you know, um, everything always prints really well for you. And I'm sure part of that's like a trumpet thing. And I'm sure maybe part of that's like a phrasing improvisation style thing. And maybe just to get going, I guess I'm curious if that's something that you have consciously thought about or worked on at all. Um, yes and no. Um, you know, I wish I felt the same, same way in my mind when I played it and recorded. But, you know, I think um, for the most part, like for recording, I've been in scenarios that have been really conducive and respective, uh, res respectful of history. And I'll give you some examples like, you know, for, you know, the group that I play with the Clayton brothers, um, or that's probably one of the most recent sidemen groups that I play with. You know, we travel around uh, at, at one point so much playing the music. Um, it was kind of second nature when you got in the studio. And that was the old school way, you know, when I first joined Bobby Watson, who was my first like gig. And we would travel around so much and play this music. By the time you got to the studio, it was like, you're ready to move on and play something else. But no, let me just make this record. So, you know, you tried so many options on the road, you know, what works here? What do they work? How can I build this? If I were going to record, how can I, how can I make this solo in two courses? And, and how can I say what I need to without overstating things? So, mm -hmm. uh, and that was, that was the beauty uh, of, of the road, you know, so that really helped me um, from a musical perspective. I think from a, from a physical perspective, um, you know, I'm a routine, like, nut. I mean, you know, I can't live a day without doing the routine. So my, my wife is so cool going on vacation. I have to do my routine. And once I do, and I can get about an hour in on vacation, I'm, I'm just the sweetest guy ever. Like, <laughs> if, I don't get, if I don't get that in, I'm just, I'm just not happy, you know? Man, I laugh because I literally feel the exact same way. And my wife would say the exact same thing. You know, she'd be like, John is a way different person if he doesn't play trumpet, you know. It's amazing, though. But, you know, because and, you know, it's, and, and John, there's pros and cons to that as well, you know, because, you, you know, can you function um, playing at a certain level without a routine every day? Probably yes. And it has happened where, you know, we've had a two o'clock, two a.m. leave and I, you know, we travel all day and we get to the venue and we have to go sound check play and there's not really time for a routine. And sometimes that was happened, but far and few between, you know, so I think I attribute if, if there has been success in the solos that I played, um, part of that could be just due to my routine and just being a routine oriented person. Mm. You know, I'm really always focused on my warm up and really always focused on my warm down because I think those are two most essential things like anyone can do. Um, and, you know, I, I would say the last thing to that is um, I always want clarity and honesty in my playing. So I always try to play what I sing. And if I try to play, if I play what I sing, it's me. If I try to play anything other than what I sing, I have no control over it. So I, I, I won't know the outcome. So my goal was to continue to expand my singing so I can have more at my fingertips if I need to go in a certain direction. Yeah, for sure. I totally hear that. What, for your routine, does that change for you depending on the day, depending on what you got going on, depending if you got, you know, you had that 2 a.m. lobby call or whatever, or is that always like, no, nah, it's got to be the same? It's the same. I have three routines. So my first routine is my maintenance routine that never changes um, because 
Um, you know, there have been some teachers that have said, you know, doing the same thing every day, you'll never grow. And I and and there may be some truth to that, but um, what I found is by me doing my maintenance routine, the same thing every day, it helps me to assess what I need to work on. Because it's if my tax aren't great, if my flexibility is not great, my endurance isn't great, then I then I have a goal. I have I have a goal to say, okay, these three things or five things weren't great in my maintenance routine. I need to spend some time on them. And then I go to um, a growth routine. And then I spend that next hour, two hours, just focusing on things that didn't go well in my maintenance routine. So I could really help to keep my level of playing at a certain place. And then my last routine is kind of like an exploration routine. That's like dessert, you know, after I've, after mm -hmm. I've gone through maintenance and I beat myself up mentally and physically trying to grow and trying to hone in on those skills, then I do something that, you know, transcribes soul or, or tr try to work on it a section of a tune or something something that is is, is a little less physical you know maybe yeah. maybe more mental in a way but a little less physical than the maintenance of the growth routine mm. have you kept those three I, I mean i love how you're thinking about that like the maintenance well the maintenance first right yeah maintenance growth exploration um i never thought about it that way but that's a great way to to put it has that been like that for you for a long time or did that evolve into that? It evolved into that. You know, when I started like traveling and going on the road, well, actually it started before then. When I was with Fielder, who was just, I mean, in every aspect of my life right now, I can honestly say he shaped every aspect from my playing to my teaching, to my promotion and tenure, to my, you know, um, you know, endowed chair, every single aspect of my career, director of jazz studies, chair of national Professor Fielder guided me. Little did I know it. Mm. I was with him, you know, in graduate school and in, even after graduate school. And he told me um, when I was in graduate school studying with him, he said, you know, the thing that's going to define who you are is your consistency. You know, um, if someone is hiring you for, for X job and, and they hire you every year for X job and you can successfully negotiate X job, you continue X job, but when you can't anymore, then someone else will come in and negotiate that. He goes, so find things that you feel need to be maintained um, in order for you to be who you are. And, and that's what I did. So I, I, I came up with this maintenance routine, but then when I started going on the road, I always didn't do it. And I could feel myself, you know, on a downward trajectory, like yeah. what is going on? I, and, you know, some people call them gig chops. So my remedy to gig chops were to say, you know, I got to get this routine in. Um, and so depending on what group it is, people are like, don't room next to him. Because if, if it's, <laughs> you know, you're going to hear like some chickowitz, like, you know. You're going to get the routine, man. Yeah, you're gonna get that routine, like, oh, no. So, so, yeah. And then after time, I found that um, I was doing my routine, but it became habitual. You know, like, okay, I'm just going to do it because I need to do it. And I don't think I was paying close enough attention to detail. Mm. And so basically I, I would do that routine. And in my journal, I would start to write down things I wanted to work on. If I didn't have time to do it right after that routine, I get to the next city and spend some time on that. So that kind of evolved into my, um, my growth. And then the, you know, Trump, the trumpet is a funny thing. It can take every drop of your time, like just playing through fundamentals can take up a whole day. And you're like, Wait a minute, you know I play jazz too. You know, <laughs> right. when do I work? When do I work on that? 
So that's how the exploration came, you know, and I'm like, okay, let me, let me use my time management to get to these three things, you know, each day, sometimes maybe not all three, sometimes it's just two. Sometimes I got a, with a four-year-old, you know, sometimes it's just one. It just depends on, you know, life and my teaching schedule. My, of course, my travel schedule now is, is not much to talk about, but yeah. So those, they, they kind of evolve, but they work in tandem, you know, to, to, to give me the confidence to tell yeah. my Yeah. Oh, that's good. You know, I unfortunately never got a chance to meet Prof Fielder, but from you and from Sean Jones and from someone, uh, who was I talking to? Ferez Witted a couple months ago. Uh, I just hear so much about him. Um, I mean, I'm sure you could talk for, for hours about him and the impact he had on you, but like, what, uh, what do you feel like made him such a great teacher i guess first of all is my question but then we can get into some other stuff um he was a great teacher because he cared he was a good listener he was hard on you and he he wanted to find out your breaking point and once he found out your breaking point when he felt the need to go there he would mm. um but i think my lessons with prof to tell you the truth um benefited me after i, I finished Rutgers. Because it wasn't about like, you know, playing this group and come in for this lesson and playing this group and go to play this concert, you know, like this the school routine, you know, it was after I graduated um, when we would sit down, you know, his favorite place was Red Lobster, we sit down at Red Lobster and he said to me, he says, hey, let me ask you something. So, you, you know, I remember he said this before I graduated, let me ask you something. So everything that you've done here in school, do you, did you save programs and save all that stuff? I said, yeah, I did. He goes, well, what made you do that? I said, because you told me to do that my first day at school. He goes, I couldn't remember. He goes, so I want you to save every single thing you do through your whole musical career. Put it in a box. If you want, catalog it, keep it, keep some sort of, keep it organized, you know. And so I did that, man. And, you know, yes, like now during this pandemic, I can go back to his lessons and I can go back to the books and read things like I've been doing like crazy because I'm feeling like I, I really need to have time now to really get my breathing together. I really have time to get this together. So I've been reading some of that stuff, which has been really cool. But the thing that's really amazing is that, yes, I did save everything, you know, and I looked through my like tenure package at, at school and, um, I remember I have a note from the president of the university, outstanding tenure package, you know, we'll use this as an example, as long as I'm president. So, you know, so that, that meant a lot to me, you know, go for tenure. Then when I went a full professor, you know, the president again wrote outstanding, you know, and this was all attributed to professor Fielder and how he had us think and, and organize our lives. You know, it, it's just amazing. It's just, he just, he was just an amazing mentor. He was a great educator and, taught me a lot on the horn and taught me a lot about, you know, life, but man, he, he, I give credit to, to everything that I do now, you know, and everything that I, you know, from education to playing. Mm. You know, it's funny that resonates with me even very freshly this morning. Cause we're at church and our pastor said something about some quote that he had heard at some point of like, you know, your people that you preach to won't remember hardly anything of what you say, but they'll remember the interaction and the personal connection that you develop with them and how you cared for them. And it's feel, it feels like that. I mean, obviously you remember a lot of what he said and that's clearly into your playing, but it's way bigger 
than that too. It's so much bigger, you know, and, and, and it, it takes me back to, you know, like we're like, but we were speaking earlier, we're both teaching in person and, you know, the, the, the words that come to me during this time are empathy and grace, you know, and two words that are so needed um, for healing, you know, two words that are so needed for teaching, you know, and, and, and we all have different styles of teaching, but as we said, you know, you put a bell cover on and you have a student play and you're like, what is that? And then you try to play it and you sound just like that. And you're like, okay, <laughs> yeah. I give up, <laughs> you know, but you know, um, so yeah, Fielder wasn't always so empathetic. And so that's one part of his teaching that I saw how it affected me and I made the conscious choice, you know, in that direction, how to maybe do something differently. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, all in all, you know, incredible. Yeah. So from like a trumpet specific perspective, what were some of the things that you got out of him? Like, you know, top three things that you can think about that you took away and have impacted you since you got a chance to work with him? So the very first thing is breathing. Just, I mean, you know, I came from a school from my undergrad where my teacher was just like, you know, detail, 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 detail. And this is how you get it done. Fielder was so conceptual. You know, he told me who and how are going to change your life. Yeah. If, if you can, if you can wrap your head around who and how, and then the next thing is do or dough are going to change. That's going to change your life, you know, um, and then if you could remember, you know, there was a few, you know, he would say, if you could remember um, playing the trumpet is like yawning. If it's any different, you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. So these, all these checkpoints, you know, um, sing like, a, you know, your playing should be like a violin. And, and, and I still do this to this day. If I'm, if I'm working on an etude or something like that, I may have like the concert master at Temple, just play through this, you know, um, mm -hmm. just so I can hear you know, an instrument that has no limitations, you know, no partials, you know, play through something and then try to emulate that on the trumpet. And I, I recommend that to my students all the time, you know, find finding ways to, to sing or find instruments that can sing without the limitation. Um, so that, that would be it. I would say, you know, the, what he taught me about my air, what he taught me about my articulation. And then as far as like endurance, I mean, you know, he, he was the first person that introduced me to the Goldman study. And he, not only did he introduce it to me, he told me that if you think about the tongue as not being a muscle, the tongue is just flaps and the, the air controls the, you know, the, the tongue. Mm -hmm. If your tongue is used as a muscle, you're going to get tired. If you just relax and let the air be 90% and the tongue be 10%, why and how should you get tired? You won't. So, you know, that's a comment people make, you know, they they come and they hear, I'll play a, a solo and they're like, man, how did you make it through that solo? I, I just knew you were going to tire it and you've been doing it all night. How, how haven't you gotten tired? And in my mind, I'm just like thankful to Fielder for, for teaching me to apply these, these techniques of, of air and breathing and articulation and how it all works together. Totally. Yeah. That reminds me of this quote that I read a bit ago from Herseth where he talks about that, like how, you know, pronunciation or articulation is really like, I think he said it was 95% vowel and 5% consonant or something like that. It feels like the exact same kind of conceptual thing. Well, well you know, Fielder studied with Herson. Oh, he did. Man, 
quick story. So they were super, super, super tight. When I when I met, because um, I started to play in Chicago and actually Bud, Bud Hurst was one of the first people I heard as a trumpet player. Oh my gosh. My, my mom was a trumpet player and she took me to, to hear the Chicago Symphony and Bud Hurst was playing. And she's leaning over to me saying, um, that's the standard, Carol. That's the standard. Every time we play, and, and I'll never forget, they were playing Tchaikovsky for it. So I was like, wow, you know, that's the standard. But anyway, fast forward years later, <clears throat> when I started to study with Professor Fielder, um, that he, he would come in and sometimes for lessons, he says, we're not going to play today. We're going to listen to this cassette from, from um, um, Mr. Herseth. And I was like, do you mean Bud Herseth? He goes, what other Herseth would there be? <laughs> <laughs> and he would, I guess on Sunday afternoons with the symphony, different people were featured as, as, as soloists. And so every time Mr. Herseth would play, Professor Fielder would, would tape it. And we'd sit in our lessons and just listen to his sound and listen to his flow. It was, it was almost like a commentary. He, he, Fielder would be walking me through it like it was a Super Bowl. And yeah. he, wait, 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 here, here comes the, the kickoff. You know? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So um, believe it or not, the two significant things in my life with Fielder, um, you know, I started, the, you know, I was all classical. My undergrad, my grad was classical. And then halfway through, my master's is really when I really wanted to pursue jazz. And the person that kind of was instrumental in all this was Bud Herson. Because Fielder took me to Carnegie Hall. I was playing left, uh, back up. I was playing left to bright seraphim with uh, soprano at, at Rutgers. And, um, and she wasn't singing some of the parts like it was written. You know, she would improvise on it. So, you know, she'd sing like, bum, 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 bum. And I'd play that on piccolo. And then the next race goes, bum, but she didn't see that. She was like, and so I was like, <laughs> so Fielder, Fielder's like, you go in a room and you just practice every configuration you can. And I hope you tape the rehearsal, which I did. And so I listened to cassette tape of the rehearsal and imitate what she did. Finally, long story short, we do the recital. Recital ended up being great. And kind of like a thank you, Fielder took me to, to see the Chicago Symphony play at Carnegie Hall. They were playing Tchaikovsky for it. So I'm like, thank you, Prof. Thank you, man. Thank you. Because you did a good job on that recital. So I said, thank you, bro. And so after that performance, I went across the street to the, I think it's called the Red Bull Diner, and sat down with Professor Fielder, and Bud Herson comes in. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Uh -huh. Come on. So we sat, and we talked, and, and uh, he turned to me. He says, Terrell, so what do you want to do with your life? I said, sir, I want to be just like you. I want to sit next to you. I want, that's what I want. That, that would be the high point for me. He says, no, 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 no. Don't be like me. Be better than me. I said, there's no one better than you. <laughs> he goes, oh, yes, there is. He goes, you know, when I was in the Navy, there's a gentleman, he would play principal, I'd play principal. And then we go to the jazz band, he would play lead, and I would play lead. But he would play solos. I couldn't play solos. He goes, on Sundays after church, I had playing a Dixieland band. It's the hardest thing I do. The symphony's easy, but that's uh -huh. Sunday after church playing that Dixieland band is tough. And so I said, well, who is this trumpet player you speak so highly about? He goes, his name is Clark Terry. Look him up. Wow. You dig? So Man. I looked up like Clark Terry, went to hear him at the Cape May Jazz Festival, <clears throat> went to a diner. He's in the back of the diner. I went, I said, Mr. Terry, I'm looking forward to hearing you. You don't know me. My name is Terrell Stafford but I have a message for you. He says, yeah, baby boy, what's the message? I said, 
Mr. Hurston says, you're the world's greatest trumpet player. He goes, Mr. Hurston's in line. He's the world's greatest trumpet player. <laughs> so, but yeah, wow. And that started my relationship with Clark Terry. And so Clark Terry told me to sit down and he said, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm working on my master in classical trumpet, but I, I started playing a little jazz, but I can't swing. People call me hiding. They make fun of me. So I, <laughs> <laughs> that's the best nickname ever so he said i'll teach you how to swing in five minutes and i said okay he said say doodle i said doodle he said say it over and over I'm like he goes that's the perfect eighth note you'll never find more perfect eighth note by saying doodle he goes now say doodla i said doodla he goes say that over and over i said doodla 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 he goes put an accent on la i said doodla 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 he goes now you say that in your mind every time you play a tune you'll always swing okay that was it Man, that was it. So, so at that moment, I mean, you you said that you hadn't really done hardly any jazz. You were strictly a classical trumpet player. How quickly were you able to like get that feeling in your playing just from that conversation? It took, believe it or not, it was it took me like a week. Here's why: wow. is because I was I was um, I was hanging out with Kenny Barron, getting some direction in jazz. He was telling me folks I should listen to. Professor Fielder didn't want me to play jazz, so he wouldn't teach me, even though he taught Winton and Terrence and mm. Sean, you know, well, this was before Sean, but Winton and Terrence and Mike Mossman and all these guys. He really wanted me to, to, to focus on my classical studies and make a career out of it. So he was like, if I ever hear you play jazz, I'll kick you out of my studio. Um, so I would go to Kenny Barron, who was teaching there as well, and he'd give me some things. He goes, you know, Terrell, I could tell you all this stuff to do, but unless you're playing it, then it's not going to mean anything. So I got a jam session with some buddies of mine in D.C. And that's when I started to apply all this, because every Tuesday I go down to do this jam session. It was like three sets. You know, first set was the house band. You know, the last two kind of sets were and, and people would call tunes. I didn't know them. I'd write them down. And then like the week I met Clark Terry, I had the weekend to like plug Doodla in. And it started to make sense. It was just, it was just like, oh man, this is great. If I just say do la do la do la do, any tune is gonna swing. And I was so excited to get to the jam session. I got to the jam session and played, and they were like, yo, Hyden, what happened? <laughs> oh, wh what did you do? <laughs> I told them, I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. Wow. <laughs> and they wouldn't. So yeah. Man, that is incredible. I, I'm gonna have to remember that. You know, because I feel like, I mean, I, I started classically too. And even my experience a little bit over the years and the experience I see even now in a lot of students who are coming from the classical side is like, there's kind of this, this gap when they try to like transfer how they can play the horn. When they try to do that in an improvisational setting, one, the style isn't happening usually. And two, like the trumpet playing is different, you know? Did you find that also? Like, was your trumpet playing, were you able to keep the level of playing that you wanted? No. I was looking notes like crazy because I wasn't applying the, the same breathing stuff, you know, when I would improvise. But then on Wednesdays, I would do this on Tuesdays. On Wednesdays, I had orchestra. So then, you know, I wake up Wednesday and, you know, I'm doing my routine. I'm, I'm doing, an, I do, I always did it on B flat and then I switched to C. And, I, and I'm getting myself prepared. And it was like one Wednesday, I was like, why is it that I have this, this certain attitude when I know I have to play orchestra? And then when I play jazz, I just thinking about, I'm thinking about, oh man, you better work on this head. Oh man, you better, those changes got you. So you better either play through them on piano, you better play through them on trumpet. 
And it had nothing to do, well, like, well, man, you better breathe and you, you better articulate mm-hmm. and you better apply the same things you're doing in classical music to jazz. It just kind of went by the wayside. And then I found myself, like if I heard a recording, I'm like, wow, I missed so many notes. Why is that? Why can I play like through the Artunian for, you know, graduate recital and not miss any notes? And then I play through, you know, minority and I'm hacking like crazy. Mm-hmm. So then after that is when I said, you know, let me try this incorporate some of this fielder stuff even though i can't take it to him and ask i still want to see if it work so it was a transition that was the hardest transition to tell you the truth huh. i mean i'm sure you were doing working on all that breathing stuff then right but in a classical setting yes okay so what was there anything different than when you took it to like a jazz setting in terms of how you had to think about it or that's the thing i was there was so much more to think about playing jazz just from an improvisational point of view and, and remembering the tunes and remembering the changes that something got sacrificed. So once I started, I think, um, I think once I started to really like work on breathing before I played a tune, once I started to see how, you know, why you improvise when you take a breath, it can be a solid full breath, you know, what's to say that, you know, what, you're the one determining the, the length between your phrases. You, you make it right, you know? Right, yeah. Um, and those things started to, to click after a while, but it, it took some time. To, that was the hardest part. And then, you know, I find myself, I found myself playing like one dimensional, you know, big all the time because I'm coming from this past hmm. world. And then, you know, you hear, you hear someone like Tom Harrell who has such a spectrum to what he does. He can be big, but he could be frail too. And you know, the frail, I didn't have a frail part of me that, that mm-hmm. took me a while to develop, you know. So, you know, it, it take it takes some time to really find yourself through the lens of other great jazz masters, you know, if that makes any sense. To- oh, totally. Yeah. hundred percent. So maybe on like a more improvisational end of things or style end of things, think back to that same time period as you're getting your all your jazz stuff together. What were some other things that you found that you had to give extra time to, or things that you had to deal with for yourself as a player that just to get it on that level? Well, you know, one thing was that um, since I like didn't take formal jazz classes, I'd buy books and I'd learn, you know, the scale and chord relationships out of a book and, and I'd learn patterns and stuff like that. And I remember I started to do that thinking like that was my shortcut, you know, um, instead of like learning vocabulary. And if I want to learn how to play over a set of chord changes or a particular sound, there's someone who's done it. You know, it's been done somewhere. And mm-hmm. for me, in the way that I learned, it was easier for me to find that source of where it was done as opposed to learning the, the, just playing scales over it. Because Bobby Watson, you know, I came in and I could learn some stuff over one of his tunes and he's like, don't don't play that college stuff on my on my music. You know, don't play that college. And you know, it offended me because I was like, well, what's wrong with it? And I asked him, I said, well, what's wrong with it? He goes, you know, he goes, people died for this music. And, and a lot of people develop a language based on what you're doing, but still it's a language. So learn the language. Don't don't think it's a shortcut that you're going to just be able to plug this pattern into this and it's going to sound fine. Because you're not, you're not listening, you're not so from that conversation, it just got me to start transcribing. And, and then when I started to transcribe, I was thrown in different situations. Like playing with Bobby was one thing. 
But then I got called to, to sub with Lincoln Center. And I wasn't really familiar with like Pixie and Plunger and that style of playing. So that was a whole new language that I had to learn. I wasn't, I wasn't, I was transcribing a lot of Freddie and, and, and a good amount of Woody and Clifford, but I was paying zero attention to like um, Bubba Miley or Cootie Williams. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there's a, there, there's the critic, uh, uh, Stanley Crouch. He, uh, He's the one, even though I, even though he crushed my spirit and my soul, he's the one that gave me a wake up call. I'll never forget. I was at Bradley's in New York and I was sitting in with Kenny Barron because I went to check out the trio and Kenny invited me to sit in. And after I sat in, you know, um, Stanley Crouch comes up to me and goes, Hey man, what's your name again? I said, Terrell Stafford. He goes, yeah, I never heard of you. He goes, let me ask you something. What was the last pop solo you transcribed? I said, uh, he goes, yeah. What's the last Ray Eldridge story? I said, uh. What's the last coolie so I said, mm. he goes, don't take this the wrong way, but you're a faker. You've learned Ooh. just enough to fake through this music. Why don't you learn the history of this music? And I was just like, oh man, it, it hurts so bad. And wow. when he started talking to me, like people came around because they knew Stanley liked to get go after the young guy. And so I left, I left that that that. I don't know, I don't even know, session, um, that destructive session. And I let ego get in the way. And I went home, I was upset about it. I didn't do anything about it. I was just so upset. So, you know, when I talk about ego and being an improviser, those two things just don't get along, you know? Mm-hmm. There's such there's such a humble aspect to improvising, you know, through, you know, et cetera. I'm speak, preaching the choir, but, but then yeah. three days later was when I subbed for Lincoln Center. And this is a true story. I come into sub. Faddis hired me to play in the section. It was when Faddis was doing some of the sections. And uh, the first tune we did was Black and Tan Fantasy. And we start, and this is Growl Pixie Plunger. I had no idea. I had a Pixie because Faddis told me to buy one. Had a Plunger because I knew I had to have one. And I went, you know, flutter tongue and I'm playing it and went and stopped. And said, Hey, bro, what are you, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm flutter, I'm growling, flutter tongue. He goes, Let me ask you something, man. Do you listen to Cootie Williams? I say, he goes, do you listen to Bray Eldridge? I said, no. Do you listen to Aunt Pops? Same exact thing Stanley said. Wow. But this time, the impact was that he said, if you don't show up tomorrow at noon and know how to play this music, just don't show up at all. And uh, that was impactful to me. I called Art Barron, who was the person that I knew played with Ellington. And I said, Art, I need help. I have a rehearsal tomorrow at noon. I need to learn about the plunger. I need to learn about the pixie. I need to learn how to growl. There was no problem. Come to my house. And I went to his house and it was just such a generous, sweet man. He was just like, here's how you growl. You know, why don't you hum and blow air at the same time? I was like, you know, I did that for a while. And then, you know, do it on the horn and get that happening. He showed me, you know, some of the position plunger. He helped shave down my pixie. He helped pull the little center thing out of the pixie. He got the pixie sounding right. He showed me how I could make dwa wa and ow ow. Mm. And then he sent me off. And I got in that rehearsal. I said, wow, 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 You know, and then look, he nodded his head, you know. So certain things like that kind of really, I think, shaped who I am because I do have such a high regard for the history of the music. Not to say that I've transcribed every Louis Armstrong solo, or every Cootie Williams solo, or every Roy Eldridge solo, but I've spent time there to understand. And I think that's influenced kind of who I am now. 
Um, and I would say at that same time, another person that was very influential was Shirley Scott. Mm. Um, Shirley Scott was, uh, we called her Auntie Shirley. And little did people know she played trumpet, you know. Um, huh. And I just recently found out that she sang. I was listening to a record and it was Shirley Scott singing on this record. So I, there's so much about her that I didn't know. But she played trumpet. And, and one day we were driving into a gig and, um, and she says to me, she goes, you know, um, do you listen to much to Lee Morgan? And I said to her, I said, um, not that much. And she goes, well, let me talk to you about articulation. And I said, sure. She goes, you know, everybody talks about sound. I said, uh-huh. She goes, you know, if you come on the radio, the first thing people hear is your sound, and that's how they identify you. Uh, and I said, yeah. She goes, well, the thing that makes up sound terror is articulation. You know, um, I said, okay. He goes, when you go listen again, go listen to whomever you like, whether it's Booker Little, whether it's Fats Navarro, whether it's, you know, Joe Gordon. They all have different sounds, you know, and course their sound, but they all have different ways they approach articulation that defines who they are. And she goes, you have no definition with your articulation. You know, you may tongue the right way and everything is legato and everything flows from what you talk about, but there's no definition to what your articulation is. So she goes, I'm gonna suggest you go listen to Lee Morgan. That's the first thing. And then I'm gonna suggest that you go to your Arvin's book and find the Arvin's chromatic triplet study, or you can find the straight one. And just add articulation to that. So you can go do And this is all coming from a non-trumpet player, or so you thought. Yes. So, wow, so heavy. So she's telling me this on a car ride in, because we were doing the Cosby show then, we were at a house then. So she's telling me this on the car ride in to downtown Philadelphia. We live in a suburb. We live like 10 minutes from each other, ironically. Um, so she's telling me this and I'm just like sitting in the car like, what, where did you learn all this? And that's when she said, I played trumpet. My dad didn't want me to play trumpet because I was a girl. So he made me play organ, but I've always loved the trumpet and I've always studied. And I want to tell you, I want to share everything that's been in my mind with you because now we're hanging out. And, um, and it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. She, she, so when she would, when I would play, Tim Warfield was in the band, you know, when I would have my kind of very legato articulation, undescribable. She would just listen to me. That when I started to work on my articulation and apply it, she started to giggle because she's like, "That's it, baby. That's it, baby. That's it. That's your story, baby. That's it." Snap, crackle, and pop. She'd always talk about that, like uh -huh. you have a pop on. You know, you have to. And so, because of her, you know, it helped to shape my like style of of, of articulation, so to speak. Mm. So, a lot of great stories. Wow. Yeah. What other, uh, you know, trumpet or uh, or like improvisation style, whatever music things did you learn from her? Well, she was like the queen of two fives, man. You know, I mean, she loved to imply two five, two five, two two five, two five, two five, two five. You know, she was like half step up, you know, whole step up, coming down half steps. You know, she was just the queen of like implementing a two five one anywhere, extra two fives, tritone sub two five. And man, she drilled Tim and I on it all the time. Like on standard, she'd always just insert all this stuff and it would throw us off. And she'd look over, she goes, listen, baby, listen, listen. You know, <laughs> so we're off, the, we're off on the side, like, trying to work it all out. And then, you know, we would get what she was throwing at us. It was it was very similar. Um, um, oh my gosh, why am I thinking? Uh, 
Hank Jones. When I played with Hank Jones, you know, same thing. Hank would just throw all these substitutions in, and you think you know the tune, and it's boom, bam, bam. You're like, whoa, whoa, what was that? What was that? You know, so they're like keeping you on your toes. Like the stimulation was just incredible. So Shirley would teach us about that, and he would beat us down about Dallas. I was like, I hate the way you guys are playing Dallas. <laughs> just flat, flat out. Flat out. She said, leave the testosterone off the stage. Mm. I want you I want you to play this ballad as if you're telling me a story. If you were telling me a story about a, an incident or, or a time in your life that was really significant, tell me how, play this song as if you would do that. And so she would make, we would play ballads, you know, with her. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, um, I was I was in France, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, and someone gave me uh, an, an album of Shirley Scott playing solo. And she played Skylark on this on this record, which that was one of the songs she taught me. Um, but when I heard this particular record, and it's, it's you can't find it anywhere, which is the sad part. I mean, I, I literally cried the way she played Skylark. I mean, there's just so much emotion that came from her. Um, and, and that's something that she really taught us. You know, how how do you emote? It's hard to teach emoting, but if you have someone that's there doing it, especially on the organ, like what other mm. instrument can you truly emote on, you know, with, yeah. with the... This, all the different sounds you can get and all the tremolos you can get. And, you know, it's just, I mean, she just taught us so much, mm. you know, and she taught Tim and I how to play. We all we played together well, but um, she would give us like, for example, for, for her first record that we played on, you know, um, she told us two weeks in advance. Yeah. You guys, we're going to record this record together next week. We didn't hear anything more about it. So about a week later, we call Shirley and say, Shirley, are we gonna, what, what about this record? She goes, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to record it at the end of the week. Well, what about the music? Uh, she goes, okay, let's get together, you know, like Wednesday. The recording is Friday. Let's get together Wednesday. We show up. She plays all the music on piano. We tape it. She has no chart. And so we were like, well, what do you want us to do? She goes, you guys come up with the rest. So Tim and I, that Thursday, the whole entire day, we, we are coming up, learning the melodies from this recording. We're putting harmonies together. We're playing the harmonies together with each other, you know. And then we pretty much stayed up all night, got everything worked out, showed up Friday morning at Rudy Van Gogh's studio, recorded the CD, and that was it. I mean, what we learned in those two days I, is more than I've learned in my career. Man, that's great. Wow. Okay, so I remember... Years ago, when we got together, I came out from the Midwest to New York, and we had a couple days together. And that was, man, that was like, I don't know if I ever told you, that was the reason I wanted to move to New York, was that whole thing, you know, getting getting to be with you for a few days, hear you. I think it was at Dizzy's with Bobby. I remember one of the things that you talked about was how important the connection with the ride symbol was. And I had never really thought about that. And even still to this day, it's been something that's kind of permeated a lot of how I hear things now and, you know, what I'm talking to students about too. But I'm just wondering, like, can you talk about like where you learned to listen for that? What, what did you listen for? Um, and just how that kind of started to affect your playing. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you exactly where. So when I joined Bobby Watson, 
Um, Victor, who is so underestimated, you know, he's like truly one of the true kings of the drums. Not only does he play the drums great, but his compositions are so great, right? Yeah. So um, for years I would play with him. I wouldn't, I would treat him as like, just like a band in the box, so to speak, you know? Yeah. And uh, cause it would be about me and me trying to play these tunes that Bobby wrote and try to navigate the harmony and the melodies and all this stuff. And so there was one night, um, we were in Germany and two things happened in this particular week. But one thing is that I was always transcribing Freddie, you know, and I would have my friend, my headphones on and I'd be singing the solo because I, I was just emphatic about singing the solo before I started to transcribe him on the trumpet because I figured if, if I could sing him through, then by the time I got to my trumpet, it made it a lot easier. So I'd always just sing and, and we were on a train and I, I thought I was, you know, singing quiet, but he snatched the headphones off. He said, hey, man, you know what you should be listening to? Instead of listening to all that Freddie, I said, what's that? He goes, listen to this. He takes the cassette out and puts another cassette in and closes it. Starts, I start to listen. I'm like, oof, oof, who is that? He's like, that's you from last night. And so I was like, whoa. So, you know, that was just like mind-blowing. That huh. You should be listening to yourself and, and learning how to edit yourself, learning what you like about what you do, learning what you don't like. And he goes, and the second thing, Terrell, leave some space, man. Leave some space. So we play the next, we play the concert that night, and I, I leave no space. Play the concert the next night, I leave no space. Third night, I'm playing the concert, and I see two drumsticks roll past me. And I stop, and I turned around, and Victor's like, space. And he grabbed two sticks. It was like, a chicka a chicka a chicka a chicka bang dang 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 and it opened up my world. And so I, after that concert, I said, man, that's what you mean by space. If I leave space, then you can help to shape my soul. He goes, yes, leave space, let me in. And so after he said that, I, I, I said, okay. So then I started to really listen to Victor from that point of the tour on. And I was asking him questions about his ride symbol. And he said this, he could play his ride symbol for me. And he goes, you have two options. You can play on top of this, you play behind it, you can play the middle of it. All three affect the motion. And if you learn that, then you'll learn how to play with different drummers because you'll see what people do. And I thought, and then he started to talk about Woody and his relationship. And he started talking about trumpeters and drummers and that relationship. And then, so that was huge with me, you know, listening to rights and leaving space, learning how drummers set you up. Because when they, when you learn how they set you up, you can ride on that. You don't have to work as hard, right? Right, totally. And then, and then I would say that the second thing that was really significant is that there was one day Bobby came to me and he goes, you know, Terrell, I'm going to be going out on an all-star tour and Horizon's going to be off for a couple of months. And I'm thinking, John, honestly, like, wow, my career's going to end in these two months, you know, the Bobby's going to not go out. What am I going to do? So I said, wow, you know, I play trumpet okay. Um, Bobby gave me a chance. You know, I've been working a little bit in town, but I need to find a way to make myself known. So why don't I go study rhythm sections and figure out ways to play with certain rhythm sections and present myself to those artists and say, look, I've checked you out. I've checked your music out. If you ever need someone, please let me know. I love your music. To the I rhythm section. Yeah. So okay. I would go, I would like to, to sweet rhythm. I hear Cedar Walton's trio play. 
check out Victor, check out David Williams, check out, you know, Cedar. I go ch- hang out with and listen to Kenny Barron. I'll go listen to McCoy, you know, McCoy Tyner. And each of these people, I learned their music. And I came to Kenny, I said, you know, I, if you ever need anyone, I've learned your music. You know, kind of making sure that I could stay in the game. And all three people I had the opportunity to work with. And huh. studying the rhythm section, studying how Kenny comps, where he comps, studying where David William plays the beat, you know, where Victor Lewis would place the beat, you know, um, was was invaluable, you know, huh. really, you know, um, and to this day, I still find it a huge part of my life when I play with rhythm sections to study relationship. How do the bass player and drummer hook up? How can I fit in? If they don't have a good relationship, how can I make it better? If they have a great relationship, how can I ride the wave? You know, just figuring out ways to play with people and connect with people is something that's a true passion of mine. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, as you're talking about all that, I'm thinking like, man, you know, I've heard so many stories of people learning other cats' music, like learning another horn player's music in case they want to sub for that trumpet player who's in the band, right? But I don't hear many stories about like learning the rhythm section and then being able to go to those folks and be like, hey, yo, I I have studied you guys. I've checked you guys out. I, I'd love to play anytime. And that maybe could open more doors. I don't know. That's interesting. I always found that like, you know, all the, like there's, you know, in New York, you know, there's so many trumpet players. Like, so which trumpet player do you speak to to get the gig? You know, or do you speak to a saxophone player and say, hey, if you, if you ever need someone in a small group, you know, I'm, I'm, or if you need a sub, that was my only, if you need a sub, let me know. Yeah. And, and I'd always find, find ways to end up subbing some way, shape or form. And then that would turn into something bigger with rhythm section. I, I would say as far as my horn, like experiences, um, the, the group that probably has taken me further and I've been the sub the longest in is the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. You know, it's, it was from me playing in the Carnegie Hall Jazz Band from um, from Fattis. Because I, actually, I started to play in the Carnegie Band and then Fattis took me out on the road with a group that he was leading and it was an opera that Dizzy wrote. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, the op- opera had nothing but like profanity from beginning to end. And so the places we play it, people were like walking out. You know? <laughs> wow. And, and it was just the most vulgar opera I've ever played in my life. But <laughs> the lesson I learned every day was how to lead a section from Fattis. It was just really incredible. And then we came back from this particular tour. And I don't know if it's Fattis who recommended me or Dick Oates, but at that time I started subbing with the Vanguard band. And then that was like the first time that I ever, I think I got opportunities handed to me by a horn player. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it was rhythm section people that were kind of hooking me up. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, something I wanted to ask you about was like, you know, just for your own records that you've done over the years and looking back on your journey and path as as a composer, as a band leader, front man, you know, um, how do you feel like your your vision, your artistic vision has evolved over the years doing the things that you've done? Um, that's a really good question, really difficult question. Um, I feel like now I'm at a right now, as I speak to you, I'm at a real lull um, with my creative artistic part now, because I think I've said yes 
a little bit too much to too many things. And, um, you know, when I say that these aren't bad things, you know, of course, yeah. a, a being a husband, a being a father, you know, B being a director of a program of two programs, both the classical and jazz program. No big deal. You know, and then, you know, I'm artistic director for the Philly pops now, and I'm in charge of their education coordinator, of their education program. And, um, <clears throat> and, you know, I'm curating all these series um, and I'm happy. Don't get me wrong. I'm happy to be doing all this. Totally. But my balance is like, you know, I listen to some of my older records and I, and I could hear like the joy and not to say I don't have that joy, but I had more time and I didn't have any responsibilities, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and now um, I want to get out. I want to get to the piano. I want to write. I want to create a melody. It seems like every time I get ready to do that outside of my like practice, maintenance, growth stuff, something comes up. So I was talking to John Clayton about it. And I just kind of answering your question. I said, you know, I've come, I've come through my life just loving everything. And I feel like now I have so much going on. And he's like, welcome to my world. He goes, but here's what I want you to think about. Give yourself some grace during the pandemic. This isn't the time for you to be challenging your artistic, you know, and, and creative skill because we're all trying to survive. He goes, but when, when we get through this, I want you to take think about you taking a week for tarot. And I was like, what does that mean? He goes, here's what I do. I take a week for John, sometimes two weeks for John. And I rent myself a cabin and I have my keyboard and I go in the woods and it's just me and, and my instrument. And that's what you need at this point in your life. You have so much going on. You just need to get back to the, that, that little kid inside of you that wants to create. And so I'm going to do that. I'm going to take his advice and um, I want to continue on with my creativity and, and, and continue as much as I can inspiring those musically and, and, and from an educational perspective. But I do need to find time. And, and this is something that I, I would probably end up saying to most musicians that are juggling, you know, higher ed, you know, secondary ed, whatever it is, juggling a life, juggling family, juggling this, juggling that, juggling, there has to be a moment that you just find time for yourself, you know? Um, and it's hard, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I tell my wife, I don't want to go in the forest with me and my trumpet without you and, and you know, my daughter, I don't want, I don't want that. So, but I, I'm, I'm working, I'm working on that balance. I'm working on that balance. I, I want to, you know, I want my next project. I don't want it to be all originals, but I want it to be um, some originals that I've written with peace of mind mm-hmm. and not like I've done on some of my records. Like, oh my God, I have to record in a week. Let me get write a tune, you know, or three yeah. tunes. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm looking for that. I'm looking for some outside of this pandemic, some downtime to just reflect on directions I want to go in. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Totally. Oh, I mean, question. I'm really trying to be honest. No, man, that's, I mean, that's a really honest answer. And I appreciate you saying that because I feel like that's a, that's a real thing that, you know, a lot of people in those positions that you're talking about that I find myself in, even for me personally, it's like that balance is so huge. Even, even the balance of um, the hang, you know, like I find that, especially in this time of the pandemic, you know, not getting to actually just hang with people is like it it sucks something out of me that I didn't know was actually there. 
And so the times that I have hung with people, it's been like, oh, oh yeah, th- this, this is what this is about. It's not just the music. It's, it's this fellowship. It's this like community that we have that we can be together, you know? Yeah. Um, it's so deep now, you know, you know, we, we meet, you know, I meet with my students twice a week, you know, big bands twice a week and, and then I have trumpet students. And um, I go, I drive to work and I drive to work with fear. Like, please don't let me bring anything back into my house, you know? Yeah. And I get to work and I say that to them, you know, I let the big, you know, we got a weekend, please don't do anything stupid so that I bring something into my household. Um, and, but, so I don't know about you guys, but when we rehearse, we have, we, you know, we have these Merv 17 filters and bell covers. You play 30 minutes on, 20 minutes off, 30 minutes on, rehearsal's done. Then there's a time for the air exchange and the next group comes in. But my most cherished time are those 20 minutes we have off. Because I get to walk around to different people in the, in the band or different sections and just catch up. How are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, and that's been like inspiration. Like, like that's been like, that, that hang, I get 20 minutes or 40 minutes, I should say, of hang each week. And I treasure that, man. I treasure that. And, and, and I can't wait to get to the point, that, you know, you know me pretty well. You know, I'm a hugger. You know, I'm like, what's up? Totally. And, and that's my whole, like, being has been stripped from <laughs> the pandemic, you know. So I, yeah. I, I want to get through this and get to the other side. Yeah, we will. We will hopefully soon enough yep so well man thanks so much this has been great chatting and i just appreciate your honesty and i appreciate everything you shared i feel like we covered a lot of ground and and you know in typical fashion for how i've come to know you i feel like you talk about things in a very direct but uh, honest way and you're very organized in how you think about things and how you think about the music and just how you how you go about your life and i feel like that it's just a sign again of that whole thing of like you know who we are comes through in our music um because i can certainly hear that and feel that i just appreciate it so thank you john you know what i love i love when you can hear how much of a master teacher somebody is by the way that they communicate and speak Like, to me, every anecdote and story that Terrell shared in this conversation had this level of depth and clarity and and almost like a sense of organization and structure that, to me, great teachers speak with. And it's super rare to find folks that can play on the level that Terrell can play and teach on the level that he can teach at. Super special stuff. So... I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Next episode is going to feature another master teacher, as well as, in my opinion, a severely underrated trumpet player in jazz history. I'm talking about John McNeil, co-author of the Flexus book. If you've checked that out, seminal stuff for all jazz trumpet players. So you guys aren't going to want to miss this conversation. We'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs>